Planet Pod, essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. Hello and welcome to this edition of Planet Pod, coming to you from COP26 in Glasgow, um, in partnership with the COP26 Universities Network and the University of Strathclyde. I'm Amanda Carpenter and we're recording this today on Transport Day. And our theme today is transport and beyond, if I can say that, um, because my guests all come from a slightly different perspective around the transport, transportation, cities, resilience space. And I'm delighted to, to welcome them into our makeshift studio. So Professor Greg Marsden, who has the rather interesting title of Professor of Transport Governance at the University of Leeds. Hello, Greg. Thanks so much for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. And we're also joined by ex-racing driver Hugo Spowers, who has seen the light and abandoned the petrol engine for uh, a new form of transport in, in hydrogen and is the managing director of River Simple. Hello, Hugo. Good morning, Amanda. <laughs> and my third guest, Joe Ravitz, is the co-director of Collaboratoria for Urban Resilience at the University of Manchester. And I'm sure I've said that wrong because it's the Collaboratoria, isn't it? Have I got that right? It varies, but uh, Collaboratorium is fine, yes. Collaboratorium. And I'm going to ask him to explain what that means, because I, like you, haven't really got a clue. So, gentlemen, thank you and welcome. Perhaps, Joe, I could start with you. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing and why, and how it relates to COP. Sure. So, uh, thanks for having me along. Uh, I'm uh, fascinated to uh, find out from our friends here what's going on. (laughs) But uh, what we've been doing for now 20 or more years is uh, studying and uh, acting on sustainable cities and sustainable regions. And uh, we say regions because this is often the left out bit, but in our view, you cannot even begin to study a city and understand it without looking at the area around. Um, So that's the first practical point. How do we do this? Well, we look at how things connect right across the board. And transport is a very good place to start uh, because we all need it, we all use it, we all have got means to get around. But we also then have to ask, why do we need to get from A to B? Why do we need a mobile life, lifestyle and not, you know, sort of sedentary? Certainly in the sustainability community at large, there's this big push towards the local, let's get local, small is beautiful, and so on. But at the same time, we live in a more globalised world. So I have a mobile phone that I'm highly dependent on. Where is that made? Somewhere, you know, Korea or something. Components all over the world, very specialised, very high tech. So we have to work out what is local, what is global, how do we uh, then uh, manage successfully what we now have, uh, which is a transport system heavily dependent on fossil fuels, as we all know, creating air pollution, congestion, noise, danger, and so on. How do we make that transition to a uh, net zero, or hopefully zero carbon, transport system in all respects, not just the emissions at the end of the pipe, but the whole manufacturing and life cycle and use cycle and so on and so on, which then brings in the way that we have developed to think about these things, you know, as you say, whole systems way. And very briefly, if we're going to make this transition, well, we have to think about the economics, about the technology, but also about the politics and governance and also about the social and the lifestyle and the attitudes of people, and also about the culture and how those uh, belief systems are made and how they might evolve, and a few other things. Now, just, (laughs) uh, I was in a meeting yesterday, 
with uh, the so-called capacity building hub. And these people are looking at you know, how to build capacity to make these transitions, how to organize the communications, how to organize the policy in the detail, which is going to you know, manage the flow of money into these things. And all the you know, PowerPoints went up and down, and everybody sounded very plausible. And I began to think, well, wait a minute. Let's talk about some of the issues which are not mentioned yet. Let's talk about inequality. Let's talk about corruption of political systems. Uh, mentioning no names in Westminster right now. Uh, but uh, let's talk about divisions of uh, fundamental beliefs. Uh, just the day before, uh, a big survey came out to say, well, yeah, people now get, the, most people get the idea of climate change, but they really don't want to do anything that changes their lifestyle, and they don't want to pay a penny more in tax, thank you very much, and so on. So um, behind the scenes, there are these huge elephants, which I have to say, inside the COP community, you know, I've been there for several days now, there's this kind of almost collective um, feel good, or feel bad, but, you know, feeling, oh, climate change is at the centre of everything we do. Fine, yes, it certainly is. But unless we talk about all these other things, the politics, the economics, the psychology, the culture, not to mention the urban planning and the uh, sunk assets, and the difficulties of making transitions with people's jobs and livelihoods and skills, we are not going to succeed. So my mission is really to understand more about that. It's, you know, another step in a long journey, obviously. Uh, and, well, we frame this as a collective climatic intelligence. And very briefly, what that means in practical terms is the ability for all people, stakeholders, organisations involved in any supply chain, value chain, transport system or whatever, the ability to learn and communicate and share ideas. And if there are differences of perception and attitude, well, we have to find ways to bridge that and agree to disagree or whatever. Uh, because until we do that, progress is going to be really difficult. And, well, we see, you know, the news comes out daily, you know, we're heading towards, you know, disaster because fossil fuels, uh, you know, to name a prime suspect, have... Uh, a particular role right at the centre of the global economy and the finance system which runs that, more or less, and also right at the centre of the power structures in each and every country. Uh, and we say, oh, why don't you just, you know, fossil fuels, you know, no longer economic, let's get into renewables. Fine, but renewables have a very different kind of power structure and uh, making that transition well, there's massive resistance, both visible and invisible. So that's an intro. So thank you. Yeah. Joe, that's absolutely fascinating. So yeah. it's basically a huge real-life laboratory yeah. mapping experiment, isn't yeah. it? And to do that, you're looking at it within a climate framing, yeah. but, but it covers absolutely everything. So, so we talk a lot, I think, those of us who are sort of in and around the climate space, about the need for systems change and a total rethinking of how we're, we're, we're running our lives. And that's more or less what you've described. An enormous, huge, gigantuan task, really. And, and presumably you've got teams of people in different sectors trying to bring that collective intelligence together. We're trying. Uh, I mean, yes, it's huge and it will go on forever. But, uh, you know, we have a couple of uh, speciality themes. One is uh, the peri-urban area around cities. 
uh, and we're just finishing a large global project with 21 cities where we've um, collectively studied as far as we can the interaction of the peri-urban development with climate change, uh, mainly on the adaptation side. So that's one thing. Uh, we've got a thing running on so-called smartized technology, which observes that, yes, every day technology gets more and more smart, it runs people's lives more and more, but does that mean the humans are then, you know, subservient and, you know, simply items in a big technological machine? If that's not always a good idea, what's to be done? So we have then come back to the human intelligence, uh, the design of human-scale economies and human-scale policy and governance systems, uh, using technology for the human purpose rather than the other way. So th that's a couple of our kind of, you know, niches. Um, transport is always there. Yeah, so uh, both of those come into the transport question. So let's hear from our colleagues. Yeah, it's a good point to bring Greg in, I think. Yeah. Yeah, so um, you make a really important point about um, peri-urban. So a lot of the focus on, on transport, well, firstly, it's on the technological, technological uh, transition. So we focus very much on shifting from one form of propulsion to another, rather than thinking about the entirety of the, the system change. Um, but then we also tend to focus very much on um, the centres of cities, because that's what we've always tried to solve. We've always been given the task of managing large numbers of people moving in and out of city centres uh, and the congestion issue. But that, I mean, that, that's a, a relatively small part of the climate problem. Commuting is 20% of the miles we travel. Uh, and, you know, a lot of that we still do by um, public transport. COVID's causing some issues with that. But what do we do about the... the you know, the sprawl of, of cities, the peri-urban journeys, the, the long leisure trips. I think it's a third of our miles are uh, journeys over 35 miles in length, and they, they cross boundaries. Uh, so, you know, you can't just uh, ask Glasgow to, 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 to solve the problem. It has to be Glasgow working with um, the Scottish government and, and then sometimes the, the UK government. So it really does require a, a multi-scale response. I'm, I'm really interested to, to know because I think the the peri-urban and the rural uh, areas are the ones where actually we've got fewest solutions at the moment, and yet we need progress everywhere. Mm. So I don't know whether you, you were able to find anything, uh, Joe, in your uh, in your work that could help. Yes, <laughs> come back to that. Yeah, and can can I ask you, Greg? I mean, your your title is transport governance. I mean, are you looking at systems of doing it? better you're looking at um, systems that involve more investment or are you just looking at, at you know encouraging people to change their behaviors I mean are you are you taking a kind of top-down approach in that you're actually requiring things of local authorities requiring things of government or are you saying that that as so often in the climate discussion it's actually up to us as individuals to, to try and solve this problem ourselves um, I wouldn't start with the individuals so I mean individuals make choices but they make choices within within the system. I can't tell you how many times I've heard, and probably uh, you and the listeners will have heard, the, well, it's only £10 to fly to, you know, um, Alicante for the weekend or whatever, and it's um, £220 to get the train to London or, or, or however much it is, it is now. So you, you, can, you, you can appeal to people to do things differently, but if you're creating a system which has got a set of incentives which are telling them something entirely different, 
then you know, don't be surprised when they turn around and go, well, no, I'm, I'm not going to do that. And I think that you know, at, at the moment, what we're focusing on is, is a transition in technologies. I mean, today in, in, in the blue zone, they'll be talking about um, bringing forward the uh, phase out of inter uh, uh, internal combustion engine cars and heavy goods vehicles, which is great. We need to do that. But that will also make uh, traveling by, by car cheaper. We know that. So it's not going to get more people onto public transport. It's actually going to work in any other direction. So if we want a system which changes quickly, which we need to meet our climate targets, then we're going to have to go for a, a, a bigger systemic change. It's going to involve um, you know, different taxes and charges and incentives. We'd have to scale up the amount of public transport that people have got. You can't tell people to choose public transport when they've, you know, if they've got an hourly service or it's not a, it's not a choice that's a you know you'd be doing that if that's the only thing you could could rely on so if 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 as the climate emergency demands we've got to do this quickly then we've got to change how how we how, how we provide the transport systems to people within which they can then make their choices and inevitably there's a relatively high price tag to that um no i, I would I, I would say it we, we do spend quite a bit of money on all sorts of things in the economy. We actually already fund from the public purse about half the costs of running the, the bus network. Um, you know, we're, we're putting £27 billion into a, a roads programme at the same time that we know that we need to reduce the amount we travel by about 20%. Okay, so take that, let's say £10 billion of that is for maintenance and renewal. Take the £17 billion from that and put all of that into the sorts of um, public transport investments and public space, um, you know, so charge point infrastructure. But we, we have to, you know, reallocate our resources to create the kind of system that, that, that we want to see. So I was once told by uh, Betty Deakin at um, University College Berkeley, when people say there isn't enough money for it, what they mean, what they actually mean is they don't want to spend that money on this. Okay, so there might be the money in the budget. There's a lot of there's always a lot of debate about public transport, isn't there? And you know, HS2 being a classic example, um, huge amounts of investment going into in, into speeding up and improving the line, and yet for most people, what they want is a reliable local bus service, so they don't have to drive to town, for example. How do you how do you balance those those, those sorts of decisions? Because obviously, we want people to use the train because the train is you know it's clean and it's efficient and and when it's running electrically and the lines aren't down, it's a really good way to get from A to B. So, so is it a question of choosing small local over big infrastructure, or is it both? I mean, because because the presumably, you know, at the moment, the government would say there isn't enough money to go around. I would agree with you. We just choose to spend the money on other things. But how, how do we balance those, you know, big city-to-city city journeys with the, the needs of a lot of people, which is short journeys into and out of cities or, or across rural areas? So I think we have to challenge our, our, ourselves. We've always um, worked on the assumption that um, people need to get places um, faster uh, and that that's what drives value in the economy. Um, we've just demonstrated through the COVID crisis that actually we can do a lot of the interaction, not all of our interaction, but a lot of our interaction virtually. So at a time of crisis, do we spend money on trying to um, deliver um, faster journey times for really long journeys, or do we need to invest in, you know, the, I guess the, the, 
you've got two thirds of, of your mileage is within 35 miles generally. So if we can improve those systems, then we'll hit quite a lot of the, the mileage. We won't get it all. We do need the, the kind of vehicle technology change. But, you know, it, 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 we're, we're in a crisis, so we have to, to, to rethink and challenge ourselves. You know, what's a, what's a few minutes? Are, are our children really going to thank us for, for being able to get to London in 20 minutes quicker? Uh, versus having climatic breakdown, I think not. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, most people who commute long distances say that actually, you know, with the effectiveness of onboard Wi-Fi, it's it's like having your office, and they don't care if it's ten minutes or twenty minutes or thirty minutes more. It's actually a dedicated workspace. So, so you know, the, the argument, you know, I think we would we would argue, or I would certainly argue, it for HS2 is is pretty fallacious, really. But but we've talked about reconfiguring the transport system, and I guess that's where you come in, Hugo, because the work that you're doing is looking at a different way of getting from A to B in in a clean, low-emitting alternative. So tell us a little bit about River Simple and what you're doing and the car that you've designed and developed. Well, we are um, in the personal transport business, but we're probably fairly unique at most car companies in thinking that we've got far too many cars on the planet. <laughs> and, um, uh, and we've got to have much better mass transport systems. It's the only way we can make particularly cities work, uh, but society generally. But the answer isn't no cars. So uh, we uh, think there's a role to play there. Um, but unfortunately, as Greg's saying, all the incentive structures in our culture are all weighed in, weighted in favour of cars. And, and I think something has got to change there, uh, culturally and politically. I, I always remember, probably 25, 30 years ago, Ben Elton in a stand-up routine saying that, why is it that whenever any money is put by, uh, invested by the go- uh, government allotted to uh, road infrastructure, it's an investment. But any money into public transport is a subsidy. What's the difference? And I mean, I think it is a cultural issue, but of course it's driven by, by the private sector interests. Um, so uh, there is a role for cars, and unfortunately I think the, the biggest change we need to see in the car world is not so much a matter of technology, we're pursuing hydrogen fuel cell vehicles, but a, a change in business model. So we, we absolutely stand by and support the development of battery cars. It's, it's a relief that finally they've, they've come to market. Um, but it's not a silver bullet, and we need battery cars for, for certain applications, but we also need hydrogen vehicles. And, and it's nothing to do really with size, it's to do with range and utilisation. So short-range vehicles and, and uh, intermittent use. Batteries are ideal, it's absolutely what we should be using, and it's the most efficient way of, of driving those miles. But if you want long-range vehicles, you need to store too much energy. Batteries are heavy, and so you end up with a very heavy vehicle. And even though the powertrain is efficient, the vehicle becomes inefficient, quite apart from other uh, incidental um, resource issues with the the quantity of batteries required. Uh, And also, some vehicles just don't have downtime uh, for charging. And that's another reason why uh, hydrogen is important. And to, to illustrate just why it's not a matter of size, the only mature sector for, for fuel cell vehicles at the moment is pallet carriers and forklifts in warehouses. They're not large, but they, it's, it's a matter of utilisation. They can get greater productivity out of a hydrogen vehicle. And equally, we can make a battery electric HGV very easily if you're happy to do 50 miles a day, but it's not what HGVs do. And, uh, and so that's why we need hydrogen. But the same is true across the spectrum. Um, for, for 
um, cars that want to drive from London to Glasgow or for um, taxis which don't have the downtime for charging. This is where we need hydrogen. And uh, uh, Greg's figures are rather more specific than mine, but uh, we often hear the 80-20 rule that 80% of journeys are less than 20 miles. And, and that's probably true. And that's absolutely what we should be using batteries for. But the corollary that nobody ever points out is that 80% of the miles are driven in the other 20% of journeys. And that's 80% of the problem. And that's where we believe hydrogen comes into play. But having said all that, that we talk about three levels of design. It's the product that I've been talking about. Then there's the system, the business model, business strategies. And finally, there's design at the third level of ideology or purpose. And so for us, that's uh, corporate governance and sustainability. And you've got to design, as Joe was saying, you've got to take a whole system approach to solving these problems. You don't pick off one problem at a time. You're trying to optimise the bundle and you, that is true at the level of the car. You're trying to optimise the car. You don't do it by optimising the bits of the car. You've then got to optimise the business model. You've got to align the interests of business with the outcomes you seek. And uh, if you sell cars, unfortunately, you make more money by selling more cars. So you're rewarded directly for maximising resource consumption. And, and I don't see how we can ever have a sustainable industrial system based on rewarding industry for the opposite of what we're trying to achieve. It's simply not very bright. But also, it's not a smart business from a business point of view because you're betting your future profits against resource depletion. And you can argue about the, the timescales for peak resource issues of all sorts. But you can't argue about the direction of travel. And they are running out. And, and if you want to grow your business, and, and you do so by increasing your consumption of raw materials, then it, it, it's, uh, it, it, it's bound to run into the buffers. So we are, at Riverton, we're trying to design a, a, a business that turns all those costs, all those uh, regulatory pressures and commodity price issues that the industry is facing, all of which are costs and reduce profits, trying to turn all those into sources of competitive advantage so that the more sustainable we are, the more profitable we are. And uh, uh, if, uh, if we, so we're never going to sell a car. We're only ever going to sell a service. We call it a, a subscription service. And it's very similar to leasing or uh, a car, but it's not a lease. The two differences are, uh, are well, so in our model, the customer will take out a service contract, typically for a three-year period, and they pay a monthly direct debit, a fixed element for having the use of the car, and a mileage rate, like, rather like a usage rate on the phone. And that covers all costs. It is literally the only transaction they have in having the use of the car. So it includes insurance and includes fuel, most importantly. And at the end of the contract, so that's one difference from leasing, at the end of the contract, the car comes back to us. And this is where the other difference is, that we don't then sell the car into the second-hand trade. We provide the second, a third, a fourth-hand customer. And so instead of obsolescence and high running costs, our interests are longevity and low running costs. Our interests are conservation of resources because the car's going to be on our balance sheet at end of life. And we're going to know that when we're designing the car at the beginning. So we design for maximum recovery of value. Not just raw materials, but components that can be refurbished. And, and it also means that instead of building a product to sell, we're building a revenue-generating asset for our balance sheet. And we capture the lifetime revenue of the car. It's designed for longer life. We model over 20 years because the average car life is 14 and a half in the UK. And so we have a longer revenue stream. All of that comes to us. 
we are paying all the operating costs, so we minimise those, um, uh, and the car has no moving parts, for instance, other than the wheels. So there's no mechanical wear, no lubricants and oil changes. And all the, raw, all the structural materials are inert, so there's no corrosion. And then finally, we're designing for end-of-life being a credit rather than a liability. And all those things can offset a higher build cost. So it allows us to bring new low-carbon technology to market without a premium. And I think that is absolutely critical in achieving penetration in the market. But that raises all, all sorts of questions in my head, and I'm sure in yours as well, Greg, actually. Yeah, I, mean, I think it's really fascinating to, to hear about this model, and I, I, I really like the, the idea that you're, you're taking responsibility for the whole uh, life of, of the asset. Um, and I also like the fact that we're, we're thinking about creating a system where people are buying into access to vehicles, because I think this is absolutely critical. So some, some of the work of my uh, colleague, uh, Gillian Annabelle, looked at how much we actually use the, 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 the assets that we have, and a third of cars sit idle on any given day, and when they're moving, they're, they're only moving for 5% of the day. So actually we could provide the mobility that we need if we were able to share our assets um, and you know we could probably manage with a third of the vehicles that we've that we've got now it would require a, um, not just a cultural change but it requires a change in, in the business models and our ability to access vehicles so I know there's a lot going on in the peer-to-peer market but again still we're, we're, we're looking for individuals to solve system level problems so I think I think integration of thinking about the, the kind of shared access as well as the the full life circular economy could allow us to provide access to uh, to vehicles, but fewer vehicles, and that's absolutely critical. I mean, if you look at all the projections that that Ofgem and, and everyone are working to, they're all they're all thinking, you know, it's it's not 24 million cars, it's 30 million. It, you know, why are we why in a climate crisis have we got projections of, of more vehicles? You know, that can't be that can't be government policy. But it but you know by default it is government policy. We've always had more cars, so therefore we'll always carry on having more cars. It doesn't have to be like that. Yeah, it's the parallel with the energy industry, isn't it? It's always about more production, more energy into the system, not less consumption, reducing consumption and requiring less. So it's that kind of growth, growth on growth on growth model, isn't it, all the time? Yeah, and and everything that we talk about as efficiency uh, just um, gets drained into the system in, you know, lower utilisation so that the benefits of the lower costs just get get poured away by, by you know by people internalizing it and individualizing it rather than saying well how can we how can we grab these benefits and use them to you know to reduce the scale of the impact of the, of the whole system Hugo I guess there's a couple of things that occur to me one is this is obviously transferable technology so the moment you're doing cars and and I've been lucky enough to see one and it is quite small I would struggle to get me dogs and my husband in it at the moment um, unless they all sat on his lap of course which is always possible um, but, 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 it's, but more importantly it's something that we could transfer into bigger vehicles as you said I and mean, you've talked about you know forklifts but presumably we could have hydrogen fuel cell buses mini buses different forms of transport which would play into some of the, the work that, 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 that Greg's doing around getting people into publicly owned and run vehicles rather than us all owning personal vehicles. Absolutely. It's, it's completely transferable. There are hydrogen buses. I think the biggest uh, hydrogen bus fleet in Europe is in Aberdeen, in fact. Um, but to put it in perspective, you've got 150 hydrogen buses in Europe. There's 3,000 in China. So I think we perhaps ought to get on with it. Yeah. 
What about the refueling? Because when you when you dropped in <laughs> uh, um, uh, on another occasion um, with the car and with with Vijita from 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 Inapta, who who actually does the, the you know is, is in the manufacturing of the hydrogen business. What about refueling? I mean, we, are we how far away are we from having you know a hydrogen pump on every forecourt? Well, there's there's about nineteen um, refueling points in the UK at the moment. And, uh, and, and certainly we need a strategy for this. And I think it's the one area where we're critical of the auto industry, really, is that Toyota have spent, I mean, uh, certainly a few years ago, north of eight billion on their hydrogen programme. And they've built a, a, a brilliant bit of engineering trying to incrementally squeeze hydrogen into a, a, a vehicle architecture and a business model and manufacturing model that's designed for petrol engines, which is why it's cost them eight billion. But uh, it is a, it's a, a formidable piece of engineering. Um, but effectively, they're saying to governments, well, you need 300 filling stations to, to create a market for our wonderful car. But poor little us at Toyota, we can't afford that. So governments, you've got to pay. And that, to my mind, is not a, a strategy. It's just passing the buck. And it's worth observing every disruptive technology in history always comes to market initially in a niche in a niche where the weakness, key weakness, doesn't matter. It doesn't come in in the mainstream segments. And the key weakness is infrastructure. Um, so our vehicles are designed, and this I must emphasize is only an entry point for the company and the technology into the market. Our vehicle is designed for local use, and it doesn't necessarily mean urban. It can be urban, but it's you're more car dependent, or should be, in the countryside than in cities. And so it's people who operate in a 25-mile radius. And there's, about, there's over 3 million cars in the UK that operate in a duty cycle like that. Now, the industry doesn't make a car for this sort of sector. Um, uh, all the segmentation of the market is all a matter of size, speed and prestige. It's not a matter of uh, local or not. Don't get me started on men and cars, please. <laughs> so, so our vehicle is designed um, with a maximum speed of 60 miles an hour. It gets there though very quickly, nine and a half seconds. I mean, it's not a sports car in Tesla terms, but it's still uh, great fun to drive and, and very brisk on country roads. Um, uh, but uh, it's, it's, um, it won't do 65 miles an hour. Um, the, the, the upside of this is that it does the equivalent of a petrol car doing 250 miles to the gallon. And that's really the big win. And we've got to focus on efficiency, but you're not going to get efficiency unless the business model changes so that it's profitable for the manufacturers to make the car more efficient. If you do a car for local use, though, the great thing is your critical scale of infrastructure to create a commercial market for the car comes down from 300 filling stations to just one. And if we put a filling station into a small city, somewhere like Stirling, Anybody who has a reason to come into Stirling once a week and want a car for local use is a potential customer. If we put 100 cars into that market, the filling station has 100 captive customers from day one. And so there's a business case for investment in that infrastructure. And not dependent on 300 other filling stations. And it then means that you can, you can expand um, the network each uh, one filling station at a time. Each one creates another increment of market. Each one is a standalone business case. And it allows you to develop the skeleton of a nationwide network without ever taking a nationwide gamble. And uh, it, at scale, hydrogen refueling is an awful lot cheaper than battery charging because a, a, a hydrogen pump, like a petrol pump, can support thousands of vehicles, but a battery charger can only support a handful. And so, uh, Ulick University did a study 
a year or two ago, uh, where they reckoned the crossover at small scale, of course, battery charging is much easier, and hydrogen's a bit of a nightmare. Mm. Um, but the, the crossover, they put somewhere between 100,000 and a million cars, and we've got over 35 million cars. So, so uh, at that scale, it is an awful lot cheaper to, 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 to have hydrogen infrastructure. But there's also a business case for it, and we have the real estate, the forecourts. They're not big enough to handle the same throughput of vehicles with battery charging because you need five or six times as many charge points. And it takes so much longer. And it takes so much longer, exactly. Joe, that sounds exactly the kind of joined-up systems thinking that you're looking at, isn't it? Yeah, it's fantastic. I'm really enthused. Um, And at the back of my mind, there's a little voice. So, yeah, wonderful. What could possibly go wrong? Uh, (laughs) And... uh, uh, so therein, uh, and, and maybe I could just uh, you know sound this out. So uh, you know the business model sounds fantastic, um, but it, it's a revenue stream of twenty years, right? And that's way beyond most financial life cycle and horizons, uh, unless you're dealing with you know some huge fixed infrastructure and so on. But you're dealing with a very well, it's a new technology. Uh, and at first I was thinking, well, why don't you just sort of graft a hydrogen tank into an existing car? Then, you know, would that work? But probably not, uh, for reasons that you can explain. Um, so the finance is, is one thing. Uh, and then there's another rather larger question. Uh, and as I mentioned, I, I'm working, you know, on a global level with, in particular, 21 cities around the world. Most of these are uh, the, the huge centres of population in Asia and Latin America and, and so on, where car use has gone crazy. Yeah, and the city is burgeoning in all directions, and the governments cannot keep up with it, and the infrastructure is, you know, struggling. Um, so you get you know traffic jams that last several hours. You know, people spend half the day just trying to get to work and so on. In some of these places, um, now if the hydrogen car for example, offered a way to take out the local pollution and not to mention you know, carbon and greenhouse gases, does that mean that we solve one problem but we've still got a, another bigger problem <laughs> uh, to deal with? Uh, and any... I think absolutely, Joe, you, you've, um, I mean, you, you've highlighted a very important point. Yeah. Uh, going back to your, early, uh, your first point, uh, it is more akin to an infrastructure investment. Mm. We've never had a satisfactory conversation with a venture capital firm. Mm. Um, and our financial model is, is projects 60 years ahead um, because it takes a long time for the, the shape of the cost structure mm. of the business to become apparent. Uh, but as you say, there are infrastructure investors and, uh, and, and um, particularly pension funds who are probably the biggest investors of all mm. are absolutely uh, after this sort of investment. Mm. It's also a more profitable model than the sale of product. And, and something that uh, spits out a regular monthly revenue stream mm-hmm. for 20 years is a very interesting thing for a long-view investor. We're a long-view company, and we don't really have um, good conversations with short-term investors. Mm-hmm. Um, but the rebound effect that you talk about is absolutely true. And, and of course, if you make it cheaper, if you make it more efficient and therefore cheaper and, um, and it's clean and so on, uh, are you going to get more car travel? I absolutely do not regard what we're doing as a silver bullet that solves all problems. 
but it is a necessary element of solving those problems. And it does require complementary policy changes as well. Um, but just because the cars are more efficient and cheaper and produce less emissions and uh, damage air quality less and so on, um, the fact that there's a potential rebound effect is no excuse for carrying on making dirty and inefficient cars. Mm. We've, got to, we've got to improve the cars that we do make. And, and, and certainly I, for one, um, am not espousing an increased cost of, uh, cost of living for, for, for people who are... Uh, um, on the breadline, but I do believe we've got to rebalance where we where where our spend goes, and I think the single most important constraint that we need to develop develop a sustainable industrial society is higher energy costs, mm-hmm. and and that would play into um, reining in excessive use of cars. I mean, it's another of the there's another rebound effect with autonomous vehicles, which is something that I, I'm seriously concerned about mm. because we've already, the very little data we've got, the most convincing bit is from California that it increases car use. Mm. And so it's another, another reason to question whether autonomous vehicles actually are a, a, a net benefit. Well, there was a, a, I went to a conference two or three years ago now and uh, somebody was modelling the uh, number of empty vehicle miles that will be driven with autonomous vehicles. Yes. I was just like, what? We're now, you know, pushing empty vehicles around uh, the system. Yes. Now, you know, I think coordinated um, dispatch systems for, for kind of demand-responsive transport or, or pulled vehicles, you can get an overall gain. But I think going back to the, the point you were making about prices, I mean, this is the discussion that the government doesn't want to have because it's, it's so, um, I guess, so politically difficult but you know the, the per mile cost of driving an electric car is is a quarter of the per mile cost of, of driving a, a, a petrol car. So you know, with, whilst there's a high purchase premium at the moment and not that many of those vehicles around, fine. But in five years' time, we're going to have one of the most unjust taxes in in, in the country in, in terms of those people who are still reliant on on older internal combustion engine vehicles are going to be paying four times the, the rate for the same service, essentially, as people with, with, with electric cars. So we have to make a transition in, in how we pay for travel. Or we don't make that transition. We leave people paying um, you know, just um, electric, you know, domestic electric um, VAT rates uh, you know, and, and motoring becomes massively cheaper. Well, if we, if we go there, then all the rest of the stuff we talk about, about city change, that's not going to happen. We're, you know, we're, we're lowering the cost of mobility. We will inevitably see the, the, the system grow. Yeah. Um, so you know, it's actually a critical. It, it's a critical time, um, and and that's um, unfortunate. We're just not hearing that debate. No, and, and I think I, I've heard you say that, that that there's also percentage of the population who are having to have a vehicle, having to have a petrol vehicle or a diesel vehicle, who can ill afford to have the vehicle in the first place as well, because it, it isn't just the issue of the. The widening gulf, if if we electrify, um, in terms of a you know non an unjust transition, it's actually people today having to spend money on transport when they can afford to do so. That's right. Uh, I think it's something like ten uh, percent of the population. My uh, colleague Julio Mattioli worked out ten uh, percent of the population who own a car but can't afford to heat their homes or take uh, a week's holiday in a year. So by every other metric. There's no way that, that you know that that's a, that's a, an emergency purchase, um, you know, rather rather than a luxury uh, good in any in any view of the world. And um, you know, if the the other part of the cycle that you know, so 
if we do make motoring cheaper, it continues. So those people who are using public transport who, who could drive, well, that might tip the balance towards driving. That takes a few passengers off public transport, and we end up in a, in a, in a vicious cycle. And the people who are you know, most affected by that then end up in this kind of emergency purchase uh, yeah. position. So um, we've, we've got to find a way of, of, of changing that game. So we have to talk about prices as well as provision uh, of, of services. So, so probably unfair to ask you, Greg, but what, what would be the one or two, possibly three things that you would want to come out of COP in relation to transport? You know, just what, what's top of your hit list that needs to be done now? Um, well, are we talking in internationally or... Uh, you can put any frame on it you like. Um, so I think one would be uh, a commitment to move towards um, frequent uh, flyer attacks. I think we, we have to... We have to be giving people clear signals about um, high energy consumption and luxury consumption because otherwise asking them to make difficult choices in other parts of their lives uh, doesn't make sense. I so think, not penalising somebody who takes the one week a year holiday to, 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 to southern Spain, for example, but penalising somebody who flies to New York twice a month to do a bit of shopping. 70% of um, flights are taken by 15% of the population. So... Um, you know, I think I think we need to provide a, a signal for those people who are who are flying a lot. Um, that may not stop some of the very highest consumers, but it will generate um, fairness. And then I think um, I, I would say that we've got to make a step change in what we do with public transport. Otherwise, there isn't a credible um, alternative around which you can have a discussion with the with the general population. Um, and I'd like to see a, um, a citizens' assembly on changing the way we pay for travel. And I would like to see some of the kinds of business models about how we pay for, for accessing cars actually brought into that. Because I think we always have the discussion about, um, you know, when, when newspapers ask people, are you prepared to do this or that? They think about the system today and they go, do you know what? No, I'm not. <laughs> but actually we've got, to, we've got to say, well, actually, you know, if we created this, would you be prepared yeah. to do that? And I think the citizens' assemblies have shown us that, you know, pe- people are... give. Given difficult choices, they'll tell you which trade-offs prefer, they would prefer to, to see done. Yeah, and those, those, those polls and those, those surveys are always really binary, yeah. aren't they? I mean, we don't ask people to, to, to help to reimagine the future, as Hugo's doing, and say that this is the answer and you could do it this way or this way. We just say, will you give something up? Or you must give something up, how do you feel about it? And that's not actually fair, because I think the electorate and the general public are way ahead of the curve um, in terms of where the government is in, in thinking about climate change and the need to take action, so so what would you what would you be asking for, Hugo? If I can ask you that, what what, what would you be your kind of plea well, for, I, the, for COP? I think in, uh, looking at it objectively, I think uh, serious investment in mass transport systems is is absolutely got got to happen if we're going to have sustainable cities. As I say specifically, they just do not work based on on cars, but. Um, uh, more particularly, I, I, I'd like to um, like politicians to understand that we are going through a step change, and and you do not navigate a step change incrementally. <laughs> um, so it, it, we all think that, and it's so it's so ingrained in us that changing one thing at a time is the prudent thing to do. When you're going through a step change, it's absolutely catastrophic. There's a, a great Welsh Prime Minister. Lloyd George once said, you can't cross a chasm in two leaps. And 
And it's very counterintuitive to us to, to think that actually making multiple changes simultaneously reduces risks and reduces barriers. Unfortunately, policy is really driven by, by vested interests uh, uh, of the private sector, and the private sector doesn't like uh, step change. So it is all incremental. And the two areas specifically uh, in the transport sector that I'm uh, uh, concerned about is one is this, this, this idea of technology neutrality, which we hear all the time, but it's not borne out in any policy that's coming out. So uh, it's a very simplistic idea that we need hydrogen for HGVs and we'll do cars with batteries. Um, it, it, is, it is not as simple as that. And if we try and do all the cars in the country or on the planet with batteries, we ain't going to have a planet left. So um, our car, for instance, weighs less than the battery does in a Tesla. And um, uh, that's uh, copper, cobalt, nickel, um, and lithium. And those prices have actually... Cobalt, nickel, and lithium prices have hit an all-time high last week. And this is with sort of uh, 2% of the world's production of cars running on batteries. When we get to a billion cars... You can imagine what the price of those is going to be. So, uh, back to Greg's point, this is never going to be a, an affordable solution for the vast majority of people on the planet. Um, and we don't argue about solar PV or wind turbines, which one's going to win the renewable energy race. They're just different, and you need them both. And the same is true of batteries and hydrogen. So we need a bit more technology neutrality. The second thing is about um, the source of the energy, I mean, hydrogen. And the government is pursuing this twin-track approach of green hydrogen and blue hydrogen. Blue hydrogen is hydrogen made from natural gas, which is where, how most industrial hydrogen is made, but supposedly with carbon capture and storage. Now, carbon capture and storage has never yet been made to work. We've been trying for 15 years, and, uh, and, and there are no commercially viable solutions. Um, and... Uh, Green hydrogen, on the other hand, is a proven technology. In fact, most of the world's fertiliser, until 1945, was made with ammonia that was created from hydrogen in Norway using hydroelectricity. So that was green hydrogen, created most of the world's fertiliser, until we shifted to making it from natural gas in 1945. And so why we need uh, an unproven technology that requires investment in R&D as a stopgap solution for a proven technology that we've had for years is quite beyond me. But, of course, ultimately, it's because we have a lot of sunk investment in refineries and other assets that are in the business of extraction of fossil fuels. And it allows the same players using the same assets to pursue the same business model. But unfortunately, as a stopgap solution, it's, it, it's doubly bad if we've got to put investment in because nobody makes an infrastructural investment in the short term. It's just going to be a long-term investment. We're going to be stuck with it for a long time. And it also seems to me, from a business point of view, a very poor investment, because you know that having invested every year in the future, you're going to be under greater and greater pressure to close it down. So why invest in it in the first place? Excellent question. And if we manage to get you into the blue zone, you can ask Boris today. Joe, I'm going to give you the last word. I mean, I think what's... What's fascinating about this conversation is that, you know, we've got Hugo coming at this from a, a, a commercial business perspective and Greg from a planning you know, overview perspective in terms of governance and, and work in, in the work that he does and the research that he does. 
And both of these feed together, don't they, into the work that you're doing. So, so we are, the answers are staring us in the face if only we can pull everything together into a coherent whole. If only. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, so, well, let's, again, I'm, I'm highly enthused with everything uh, both my friends are saying. Uh, and I, if there is one thing left to fill in to the picture, I think it's, let's say, an integrated vision of where we want to be in a short space of time and that is like the other side of the chasm which we are then inviting people to leap over now uh, coming up to cities and uh, the hinterland and, and so on you could say okay so we have urban solutions and peri-urban and then long distance and then international and so on and in each of those as you say we need to be technologically neutral but we also need to have a reasonably practical idea of which way we're going to go uh, in order to make those investments and, and so on. Now then, in my personal view, we have to look beyond you know, current models where you know, people have a car and they park it here and, and so on. Uh, the thing on my table is Uber and all the platform, you know, uh, new ways of organising mobility, of which Uber was one of the pioneers maybe, and now we have car sharing, we have lift sharing and, and, and so on and so on. Uh, enabled by you know uh, digital platforms, um, Uber is a great example because they came in as a market disruptor and created all kinds of problems. So they you know exploited the drivers and they had no connection with the public transport. So they're putting bus services out of business and uh, pay no tax, obviously, and and so on. Uh, so we then say, oh, what if we try to take all the good uh, positive things about Uber? And build them back into you know an integrated city planning uh, and infrastructure uh, program. Now, that works very well in the technical sense in many ways because you're okay in the city we do Uber type things in the, in the countryside we do uh, hydrogen cars or lift sharing and so on and so on. We now have the technology to balance all these things. What is then missing is any kind of transition uh, thinking. Uh, and, well, from experience around Europe, uh, looking at the way that transitions can work successfully, uh, we then say, okay, if you want to bring everybody along, well, you have to bring everybody along. And, for instance, that means if, as you mentioned, many car owners are in actually dire poverty and they have to have that car, uh, so if we say, oh, sorry, you have to junk your car and buy a, a new one, that will be you know, five times the cost. This is seriously not possible, and any government that proposes it will fall over. As we know, uh, even at 5p on fuel prices is extremely emotive, and people will be demonstrating and, and, and voting down the government. So we have to then say, okay, what kind of political business model or you know, society model will enable that transition with the least possible pain, or in fact no pain, to the people who are the most vulnerable to that? So the finance models that you're talking about are great. We then maybe bring in emerging concepts such as the universal basic infrastructure, which is a kind of parallel to the universal basic income, which is much debated and tried in some countries. Uh, and say, so, okay, everybody has a right to infrastructure, uh, to transport uh, accessibility. How is that best provided? And for those that need it, can it be done, you know, as a general service, just like, you know, the NHS, for example. If you need it, it's there, you know. Uh, and that's wonderful. So that kind of 
joined up thinking, where you bring together the politics, the economics, the social side, uh, and the uh, technology, obviously, and the urban planning. There's one thing left to, there's one gap. <laughs> and if you have any last advice, uh, cars are deeply psychological. People, <laughs> some people love their cars. Personally, I, I love my camper van, but that's another story. Uh, and um, how to get around that now? I'll leave that as a question. Well, I think that's possibly a conversation for another day because <laughs> um, we've probably run out of time. But, but, but thank you all. It's been absolutely fascinating. And I think that what this, for me, what this kind of emphasises is that there is no single solution to any of that. And we all know that. But we need the kind of collaborative work you're spearheading, Joe. We need the imaginative thinking that you've got, Hugo. We need the, the thorough, robust data planning and strategy that you're driving with your team, Greg. So, 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 so really, I think we should just hand over transport and infrastructure to the three of you. Um, I hereby make you all ministers of transport today because I genuinely think if we can get this kind of you know, imaginative, disruptive thinking into the system, we may stand a chance of tackling this problem. So huge thank you to you all for making the time today. Thank you so much for being with us. It's been an absolutely fascinating discussion. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you very yeah. much, Amanda. Well hosted. Thank, thank you. you. My pleasure. Um, you've been listening to Planet Pod, brought to you from COP26. My thanks, as always, to, to Jim, our producer, and to Beth for making it happen, and to the team at Grantham and at the University of Strathclyde. Uh, thanks for listening, and goodbye. Planet Pod is brought to you by Akil Management. My thanks to our producer, Jim Haywood, and our researcher, Beth Palmer. And to you, our listeners. Without you, we'd be very lonely. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at planet underscore pod, or visit our website. Please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you with ideas for future programmes. Thanks for listening. <laughs>